0: You know that we're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so please turn there in your Bibles with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In order to deal with all the problems Paul has become aware of in this church in Corinth, he must speak the truth in love to the hearts and minds of these people, Because their affections have literally been hijacked by worldly concerns and and motivations. I think I just want to ask one question to start off to, to get you kind of in the context. How would you like to write a letter to a church that had all this going on? This was in a time when a personal trip he could make, but it would have taken a long time, and he didn't get back until the next trip. So he wrote a letter back. I think that helps you a little bit, knowing that God inspired him through the Holy Spirit to write every word, but he wrote it. Having to deal with all of this. The factions and the quarreling already mentioned in verses 10 through 17 are the evidence that they no longer really cared about Jesus' teaching that his people must be the light of the world and the salt to the earth. Instead of being in the world but not of the world, they were all in and They weren't being light or salt. Down through the ages, God's people have always struggled with how to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And there are two extreme responses to Jesus' command that he constantly warned about. One extreme is to completely separate from the world. And the other is to completely assimilate into it. Why are these extreme responses dangerous? Because they threaten the clear message of the gospel. Each extreme warps or undermines the gospel message. Jesus prays to the Father in John 17 this, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. How many times is the world used in that part of his prayer? Eight times. This is a huge issue. It always has been, and it always will be. Jesus came into the world to save a people for himself. And when saved, Christians still live in the world, but they have a new and glorious purpose. We stay in the world, but we've been changed. Now we have been delivered From the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Christ. We have been set apart by and in Christ to be light and salt to the world. In other words, we still live in the world, but now we belong to Christ, not to the thinking or the ways of the world. Jesus says that now we are not. Of this world. And you notice in those passages, there's no argument here. There's no wiggle room. It's not like something you get to decide. If you're a Christian, you're in the world, but you're not of it, meaning that we belong to Him and His kingdom. That's our primary identity. So, what is our purpose now? Our purpose now is to live out our days in this world as ones who really do belong to Jesus Christ. Period. That's it. This means that in most ways our lives are now countercultural. Light in darkness. In other words, we can't be light and be evasive, separating completely from the world or isolating ourselves. Well, this wasn't the Corinthian problem, was it? But it is in other places. Nor can we be light if we assimilate or accommodate to the world, absorbing its ways. This is obviously the Corinthian problem, and in case you haven't realized it yet, it's our problem as well. It's a struggle. There's a reason why South Korea sends more missionaries to the United States than any other place in the world. Just think about that. When I was a little kid, I've told you about a missionary friend in our church who was a missionary in China, In those days, it was wild. But he had some great stories. He'd been in prison for 10 years because he was a Christian. And one time he had a friend come visit him, a man he had led to Christ, who was a Korean. And I never have been able to find this out, but I'm almost sure That this man, whose name was Dr. Pak, half of Korea is named Pak, was one of the main instruments that God used in the revival there, that allows enough Christians to be there that they're sending missionaries to the United States. Why would they do that? Because the church in the United States is a mess. Too much of the American church resembles the Corinthian church. And as we live in the world as Christ's people, God also works to sanctify us more and more by making us more and more like like Christ as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to apply the truth of God's word. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians Chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 1 Corinthians 1:18 1, through 25 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. I know most of you, if you're looking at your Bible at all, you know we didn't finish this. This keeps going into chapter 2. But we've got to cut it off somewhere, and this is a good place, and we'll pick up part 2, maybe 3, I don't know. We'll pick it up in the next couple of weeks. We can learn the lessons that we need to learn by understanding the very similar situation of the Corinthian church. So how does the Apostle Paul approach these people? It's obvious by their behavior that they have some huge blind spots about what they're doing. So what does Paul do? He goes after the main cultural values and the priorities of that day in this city. And then he contrasts those with the values and priorities of Jesus Christ and Christ's people. Hopefully then, these Corinthians will wake up and see the stark difference that God will open their eyes. There are a couple of repeated words here that clearly show what the city thought was most important, and you cannot miss them, right? You know what they are. We see wisdom and power used multiple times, all the way through chapter 2, verse 16 especially. What else do we see? We see folly, foolishness, and weakness used in opposition to wisdom and power. And he plays it both ways. Will the Corinthian church see how their factions and other sin issues are becoming exactly like the non-Christians around them? They seem to be blind to that. Will they wake up? So Paul gets their attention by using these value-loaded words and then contrasting them with the values and priorities of Christ. That's what's going on in this passage. But First, let's define what wisdom is in the Bible. What's biblical wisdom? It describes skillful living that is aligned with the things of God. It's being able to apply biblical principles to your life, which is only possible if your heart is oriented to God. Your heart has to be oriented to God. Now, is that the wisdom? Is that what wisdom means to most people in the city of Corinth? Not at all. See if this definition of wisdom hits home in our day. Well, like most people in the Roman Greek world, the Greco-Roman world, wisdom meant acquiring intellectual intellectual knowledge that could be used to attain power and influence. In other words, it was a tool to get what you want, and to be looked at like you want. Paul uses the verse that we ended with last week, verse 17, to make a strong statement about the priority of preaching the gospel in order to squash their quarreling and factiousness concerning who baptized who But he also uses this statement in verse 17 as a segue into our eye-opening section here that nails the Corinthians' main problem. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with, what? Words of eloquence or eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be completely emptied of its power. Okay, so here we go. Paul's getting ready. The pen, the sword is sharp. Paul starts by bluntly devaluing words of eloquent wisdom. You realize, without technology, this was the main, not only entertainment, of the ancient world. This is what the crowds came up to hear, to see, were great speakers, especially in the Greek part of this world. Highly valued. Lifted up on pedestals. Oh, my. Because that kind of speech, that words of eloquence, Wisdom could or would cloud or empty the message of the gospel and specifically the cross of its power. Why? In other words, eloquent speech-making calls more attention to the speaker and not to the God who saves by the power of the cross, the gospel. Has anything changed there? A little, but not much. Remember, the Greco-Roman world valued the kind of wisdom that could be used as a tool by somebody to advance their own agenda. But as the ESV Study Bible says, it was the people's fascination with the rhetorical ability of the ministers, rather than their message, that demonstrated they were living contrary to the power of the cross. Did you get that? It was the people's fascination with someone's rhetorical ability that demonstrated they were living contrary to the power of the cross. Not the message, but how he spoke and how eloquent it was. And that's what they would get all enamored about. What's that mean? It means they love to discuss all this stuff. And out in the open and have, well, that guy said this, but he used this way of speaking. That guy said this, he was more persuasive that's what these people were known for Paul immediately follows that explanation in verse 17 with it, that he he follows that in 17 with an explanation and it'd be very hard for the people in the Corinthian church to ignore the implications that Paul is laying out for them here verse 18 does he mince any words now he's started off gently He's thanked God for them and what God had done in them. But he can't keep doing that the whole letter. He's got to speak the truth. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who... See this? You notice what this text is in. Who are being saved... Yes, if you believe on Christ, you are saved. But we're in this process until glorification of being in the process of being saved. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is the word of the cross? The first basic truth about the world and God's kingdom that we've got to understand is that the gospel... And understand this, the gospel, by God's determination. We didn't vote on this. By God's determination, absolutely divides the human race into what two groups? Those that are perishing and those that are being saved. And you notice that that is all the way through verses 18 through 21 especially. Okay. Switch gears, downshift. So, if I'm being told, as I hear this letter read in church, you're a Corinthian now, if I'm being told that I'm haggling over which minister or teacher is more eloquent and intellectually gifted, and that I'm therefore more impressed by eloquent speaking and intellectual knowledge than the cross of Christ. And Paul is telling me that there are only two groups of people in the world and that those who are perishing look at the cross and are not impressed and think it's foolishness. Then, is that me? And if I truly am living that way, then how can I untangle myself and my church from denying the very one we gather to worship every week? That's the process that Paul hopes will happen, prays will happen, and it's trusting God that it will happen sometime by His grace in the hearts and minds of these people. But he knows that they need a whole lot more truth here attended by the power of the Spirit, to literally pry them away from the powerful tug of the culture they live in. So he continues, and there's no breaks or intermissions. In verse 19, Paul quotes the Old Testament to show how those who rely on their own cleverness or reasoning actually cut themselves off from the truth they so desperately need. Their sin is intellectual pride. We probably all struggle with this. If you struggle with it, and you've been humbled by God, by whatever circumstances he brings, by all sorts of different means, And you still respond to the truth with, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to think that way. What are you saying? You're saying that your opinion is more important and more authoritative than the word of God. And Paul knows he's battling this because if you're arguing about who's more eloquent, then the person cares more about what kind of response he can have to the truth and how he can argue with it than he is the truth going right here and hitting deep. And there's nothing more sad than having to talk to people who are fighting this and they will not give up and they will not just say, God, You are the author of life. I say I belong to you, so that should be it. And that's what Paul is dealing with. Look what he says. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And you notice God's been saying this ever since man hit the earth. But it's all over the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. This statement is echoed all over the Old Testament. And does that sound familiar to many things Jesus has said? Oh, yeah. Especially when he was talking to the Pharisees. But what is God saying? That his revelation of his gospel to us is so counterintuitive to the way we think that we can never, in and of ourselves, figure it out. What does that do to the balloon of eloquent intellectual argumentation and speech? It's a loud pop, folks. And the point, problem is that these Corinthians don't want to pop that thing. It is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul's really just getting started. Look at the first part of verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Well, here Paul uses three examples which reflect what and who the Corinthian culture highly regarded and valued. You notice there's not any athletes on this? But there was. They had something called the Isthmus Games. You know, the Olympics started in Greece. And they had these athletic contests on this isthmus, which is where Corinth was between this part of the land and this part of the land, the land that connected it. And it was a big deal. So you know there's there's athletes involved here, out here, higher than they should ever be. But they're not the ones that Paul is talking about. The most influential people that they lifted up were people who claimed to be wise or other people thought they were, the scribes who supposedly knew everything about everything that was ever written in the Old Testament, and the debaters of this age. You know, that's not a big discipline anymore. But This is scary to me. How many of you sat through most of your classes in high school and never said a word? Why? One-third of my high school was Jewish, and that is one of the Olympic Games for that community that I grew up in. And we're talking some brilliant people that were not afraid to debate about anything. And we actually had our greatest sports team that was unknown to most people was the debate club that won all sorts of regional and national stuff all over, all the time. These guys were merciless. They were so good. I got a feeling that these people were in the same category. We're not cutting down these people. We're saying this is who this church living here, the people still lifted these people up to another category. So he's talking about this. These are who we would call the experts. See that's our category now. Well, what do you think about this? Well, today we have the expert in this category, so and so and so and so, with about fifty and you know letters behind his name and everything that we don't even know what it all means. And this is what they think. And then they bring in somebody else. Hey, we've got this guy. You get that? We 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 have our own ways here. Who by their rhetoric and their learning, their earn earned status and power over other people. It describes what this culture emphasized as being important and valued. See, this is a picture. You want to know what the Corinthians valued and held as important? That was it. And in verse, the rest of verse 20 and 21, has God Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Y'all catching that? In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, why do you think those who are wise according to the world think the gospel is foolish? Why? Who in the world would offer a gospel of salvation with a person who was executed by crucifixion, shamed, naked, beat up as the Savior? Anybody want to vote for that person to follow? In their view, looking at people who were debaters, scribes, scholars, wise, Jesus was shameful. The whole point of the Roman execution was to shame this person. And because the gospel offers a person who suffered a shameful crucifixion as the only one who can be the remedy to humanity's most serious problem, the arrogance of human wisdom blinds unbelievers to that truth. They just can't handle it. That's foolishness. The irony here is that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Human wisdom has failed, but God in his kindness has provided another way to know him. Paul Barnett writes, God knew that human arrogance would be intolerable. God knew that human arrogance would be intolerable if people from this corrupt age, could reach up with their intellects and say, There is God. We have found Him. There's a lot said in that one sentence. So God's way, through His mercy and grace, does what to the proud and arrogant? Humbles. The last thing on the face of the earth anybody would say is necessary. You, you do realize that humility is now almost a cuss word in our culture. If you put that on your resume, who would even look? Interpersonally, we love being around humble people. Because we get served and we get to talk more. God is so counterintuitive in so many ways. That, the way God deals with this, humbles the proud and the arrogant, prepares those who believe. To rest, live the rest of their lives in loving submission and dependence on the one who humbled himself to come to our rescue. Do you see how that connects? If you're a proud and arrogant person and you say you believe in Christ, odds are that you think you had a whole lot to do with it. And if God doesn't live up to your standard expectation, you're going to be checking out in a lot of ways. Those are connected if you see how great, holy, and righteous, and merciful, and loving God is to send His own Son to do what we can't do for ourselves, you start off in a posture of what? Bowing to the Lord. And the rest of your life is going to be one big mess if you do not humble and submit to God. And we see demonstrations of it, and it doesn't phase us. So we shouldn't be surprised. The same was true when Jesus humbled himself and presented himself on the earth. How many people were not phased after they saw him bringing somebody back to life? We go, if I saw a miracle, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. If you don't want to bow before your Creator... You're not going to be convinced. Unbelief is always the reason for not accepting God's will and His ways. That's a scary statement, too. Unbelief is always the reason for not accepting God's will and His ways. It shows itself in a couple of basic ways, which Paul describes here in verse 22. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek what? Wisdom. The Jews were given the Old Testament scriptures. They were recipients of God's covenants. Good grief. God delivered them from Egypt, parted the Red Sea, and destroyed an army. And we're not even talking about the plagues. They saw God in action. He gave them the law. He gave them the promises. He gave them prophets to speak His word to them, etc., etc., etc. Yet even with Jesus among them, when He finally came, they refused to believe on Him because He wasn't what they wanted. Sound like our hearts at all? Even hearing Him teach and explain the scriptures with authority. Didn't do much more for almost all of them instead of making them angry. Anger. Even performing miracles that they witnessed and couldn't explain, didn't phase most of them. And as we see here, the Jews wanted the proof To be signs that they demanded, which would be quite a different scenario than the signs that Jesus did perform. By the way, most of those signs, the Pharisees and scribes were front and center. You know, they had the best seats in the house when the guy came through the roof and Jesus healed him. They got angry. See, Jesus knew that the signs that he did perform were way more than enough to leave them without excuse. And anytime you see a demand for proof by signs and wonders, it's usually just a smokescreen or some evasion strategy. That person doesn't want to believe. And if they did see something miraculous, they still probably wouldn't believe which is what happened to most of the people who did witness Jesus' miracles. Now think about this too. For the Jews especially, the idea of a crucified Messiah <clears throat> was abhorrent to them. What did they expect when the Messiah came? Power demonstrated in the destruction of, of Rome's occupation. That was their idea of delivery. And when Jesus didn't fit that mold, even though there was plenty of evidence, plenty of prophecies in the Old Testament about what he would do. And every time they went into the temple or they had a sacrifice, it was a picture of, of the Messiah and what he would have to do. But so many, did they get that? No. They didn't get it. Any time you see that, it's usually just an excuse. It's a way to evade the real issue. The Greeks wanted intellectual proof, something that would make sense to them in a new and exciting way that they could talk about and debate and be popular for. Did the Christian gospel fall in that category? <laughs> no. And you're going, well, it should have after he rose and people were rising from the graves and <coughs> speaking Christ and all these guys that were running away all of a sudden turned into these fabulous trusting missionaries and all the stuff. that Yeah, God used and he brought many to himself that way. But for the most part, uh-uh. We've already seen that most Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world thought the cross was absolute foolishness. Why? Because their cultural, the air of that culture was breathing the debater, the great speaker. The point Paul is making is that the message of the cross proves God's folly Outmatched human wisdom. His weakness overpowers human strength. This was a really strong message, was it not? Look at verses 23 through 25. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now notice that God's power and wisdom are demonstrated in his calling of people who are both Jews and Gentiles. That's his wisdom and power. This is another place in the Bible in which God's effectual calling of people to believe is explained as being normal, ordinary. The reason we are doubtful about this is because all of us tend to want to know why he called those to himself. Which God does not explain other than it pleases him to do so. I don't know about you, but that's humbling. I think it's designed to be humbling. Deep down inside, we want to know what it is about us that contributed to God calling us to himself. It's just the way we are. And his silence about this should warn us that there is nothing in us that merits his mercy and grace. One of the things that got my attention 15, 20 years ago, no, 25 years ago now, was somebody said the only thing we bring to the table in salvation is our sin. I thought, oh, wow, that's really true. The truth is made abundantly clear, this, all through scriptures. But every single one of us deserves condemnation. So God choosing to bestow his saving grace upon us is a demonstration of his mercy that none of us deserve at all. Another question, is that humbling? Yes. Is that good Not if you think humility is not a characteristic you would like to be known for. But as far as walking with him the rest of your life, knowing his power and grace, it automatically kind of kicks that in as being, this is important to know who I am and who he is. That's how we work. Paul would only preach Christ crucified. And those who will not believe that sign or accept that wisdom will not accept God. To those who seek other signs, the cross is a stumbling block. And to those who seek other wisdom, it's folly. So do you kick back into the church? you see what's going on? People have forgotten this. They're breathing the air of their culture. It's like they don't even think about it, but they hold this other stuff up. So it just kind of comes out in their church. And we're going to see all sorts of mess. Selfishness, don't care about why you're there. You just want to look more important. You know, I mean, you just go down this list, it's incredible. But this is the basis for all of it that we're looking at today. You know, ironically, the very part of God's plan and work that seems most ridiculous and useless from man's natural point of view actually demonstrates his greatest power and wisdom. That's also the way God works. How many times have you gone, I can't believe God just said that. God just did that. God worked this way in my life. Sometimes you got to be way over here and look back decades, or for you young people, five years sounds like forever, to see it. And then you'll go, man. Then you go, well, that wasn't just a tragedy of evil. It was actually used by God to bring my heart where he wants me to be. Because this life is about like this. And eternity is, well, we can't show it. And this is going to look really small compared to this. But that, too, you have to trust your God for. You have to trust your God. Who else, this is, we're so foolish. Who else would we want to trust? Try a political person uh uh-uh. Try anybody. Maybe for a little while, but then we see, oh, they're human. They've got issues. Yeah. Every one of us has issues in here. God is in the process of sanctifying each and every person that belongs to him, which is why the love of recognizing our standing in Christ with his identity and what he had to do, to save us from our sin and the power of it. That's why that's so important to know because we're all in the same boat to shine light to a world that still making excuse for all this stuff or making it right or lawful. God's power that actually accomplishes the salvation we cannot procure from our, on our own is not of men, but it is offered for men and women. Written between the lines so far in this letter, can you see the question that Paul's raising as these Corinthians read this? We should be asking this. Do you know and believe this God of the Bible? Do I believe this God of the Bible? Because one you make up isn't going to save you, folks. This God of the Bible is the one who saves. This God of the Bible is your identity. Believing in the God of the Bible means we cannot edit his characteristics or the script to suit our own purposes and predilections. Predilections. Because one step in that direction is a step of dangerous compromise with the world. So here goes Paul. He founded this church. He knows most of these people, or a lot of them. He cares about them. He's speaking truth and love. But he's not leaving out what they need to understand and what they need to believe. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are humbled by every passage we look at in your word. It seems like this letter can be so important for the day we live in. We pray that you would protect us, that you'd make our hearts open and hungry for you and your word. That we would take a deep breath, and that we would submit ourselves to you, recognize our identity, and that we know we have to do this multiple times every day just to recognize how easy we get off track. It has been expressed so many times, God, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ who call us back, who also, when they stumble, we see other people stepping in to help, to speak truth and love, to serve, whatever it takes. This is a living organism, God, and Christ is our head. And we pray that we would operate and live in such a way that people who do not know you would be bathed in the light of Christ reflected in us and through us and be preserved and become something we'd love to taste, we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Would you stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.